umgoblue.com by fans for fans since 1999 hello welcome to this edition of the umgoblue.com podcast this is Phil Callahan along with Clint Derringer and we're going to wrap up the Big 10 championship game that saw Michigan triumph by a score of 43 to 22 and talk about the season in general up to this point well, Clint, what did you think about the Big Ten championship game? Well, I, I thought it was really uh, interesting going into the game. I thought maybe Michigan would um, kind of just tweak the game plan that they had going into the Ohio State game because, in, in a strange way, Purdue's offense operated in a similar way to uh, Ohio State's offense in terms of being pass first um, with uh, you know, and just trying to eliminate uh, as many explosive plays for touchdowns as you can and uh, making them execute up and down the field and then finish for touchdowns in the red zone. So a, a similar game plan in, in that manner. And, and that's what we saw. Michigan conceded a lot of yards and allowed Purdue to run a lot of plays. Uh, I tracked 83 plays for 469 yards for Purdue, but they could only turn that into you know 22 points and uh, only nine points in the second half. So, uh, another really, really great defensive game plan and uh, another uh, very similar uh, shape to this game on the offensive side in terms of a little bit of a slow start, you know, uh, only up 14 to 13 at halftime and then uh, really found some creases in the running game. And uh, Donovan Edwards had, had another couple uh, big runs and uh, was named the game's MVP. So very, very similar a tone and uh, I think a, a strategy, even if the specifics of the game plan were, were different, of course, but um, I think a very similar strategy from what they did uh, in the 12th game into the 13th game. And it was uh, obviously good enough to beat Ohio state and then uh, good enough to beat Purdue and, and bring home a big 10 championship. Definitely hats off to Purdue. They were, they held up the honor of the West division of the big 10, certainly better than Iowa did last year. And I was struck by how similar this game was to many of Michigan's other games this season. As you said, really tight at halftime, 14-13, to 13, and then Michigan outpaced them by scoring 29 points to their nine in the second half for a final of 43-22. to 22. And, you know, on one hand you look and you say, well, Michigan gave up 22 points. But on the other hand, it really felt like a like a typical Michigan prototype football game this season, you know, kind of probing them and trying different things in the first half and then just putting the pedal to the metal and, and blowing them out in the second half. And, you know, it's interesting because I was wondering heading into this game, when you look at the records of the teams, right, Purdue came in, you know, with four losses and of course Michigan was undefeated. I thought there was a chance Michigan might just blow them out in the first half and, and get it over with. And it's interesting because I think from an entertainment standpoint, it definitely kept people tuned in. And on one hand, if you're, you know, from a national perspective, if if you're wondering, oh, great, is Michigan for real? You know, you could kind of maybe question it in the first half. But then you saw what they did in the second half, and you're like, yeah, this is how Michigan does it. Yeah, to your point about the, the slow start, I'm just going to look at the success rate, right, our efficiency metric. And that's really how – how did you stay on rhythm in terms of moving the chains? So did you get 
50% of the yards you need on first down, right? Usually it's, you know, first and 10. So you need five yards or more to be successful. It's two thirds of the yards that you need on second down, right? So, you know, second and 10, you've got to get seven yards to be successful. Uh, six yards would not be successful on second and 10. And then third down, you have to convert 100% of what you need. And fourth down, you have to convert. So those are successful plays in terms of success rate. And the game ended up very close with Michigan at 46% success rate on 56 plays. And Purdue, 43% success rate on 83 plays. And then for comparison, Ohio State was also a 46% success rate uh, the previous week. And Michigan's success rate in that Ohio State game was just 39% with uh, explosiveness being the difference in the, in the Ohio State game. So uh, Michigan and Purdue were very similar in success rate, and, and Purdue got to run a lot more plays. Again, they marched pretty easily between the 20s and then could not find a way to punch it into the end zone once they got into, into scoring opportunities. So um, that, that success rate metric, um, even though it ended up close in the first quarter, Purdue was 55% and Michigan was 30%. Right. It was a huge gap. Uh, Purdue had a great uh, game plan for how they wanted to attack Michigan's defense. And they were finding space with, uh, you know, Charlie Jones, the wide receiver transfer from Iowa. He ended up with a, with a huge game in terms of receptions and yardage. Um, but the second, third and fourth quarters, Michigan had an efficiency edge. Right. It, Purdue was 47, then 33, then 36 percent success rate. So the uh they started to get a little bit more physical with Charlie Jones uh, at the line of scrimmage, played a little bit more man coverage, right? And then uh, created a little bit more pressure with their with their four-man front. And offensively, the, uh, you know, the offensive line, the offensive staff, the run game coordinators started to make a couple adjustments to what they were seeing and, and eventually broke some long runs. So I, I thought, again, the, it was really echoes of, of the same game plan, just dusted off and, and adjusted for what they were going to see personnel-wise from Purdue uh, from the week before, and that makes total sense to me because we know that Michigan staff put you know an entire offseason and, and the full season, regular season, into what they created for that Ohio State game plan. So the fact that they ended up against a Purdue team from the West that uh, kind of fit the same bill offensively and defensively as, as Ohio State then. It, it actually turned into a, a simpler uh, week of planning for Michigan, I think, um, from what I could tell. It's, it's what I thought they might do, and, and I would agree, or I would, I think that it was confirmed with what we saw. So one of the interesting things for me when I was looking at the postgame stats is that actually Purdue outgained Michigan. 456 yards to 386. And, you know, it's really notable when you look at the passing yards, you know, um, 366 yards to 161. So looking at the game, you know, with perspective of it being over, you know, it, you look at the scoreboard. But if, if I had seen those stats, if I had known those were going to be the stats prior to the game, I would have suspected that it would be a much closer match. So, you know, going back and rewatching the game, again, as you said, Purdue had some success at times, but Michigan was really able to shut them down when it counted. And, you know, yards don't always equal points. And I think that's the thing that I took from watching the Purdue offenses. Yeah, they had some success, but if you can't convert it to touchdowns, 
um, you know, it's it's you're, you know you're going to get out outpaced, and I think that's what happened. The other interesting thing is, you know, when you look at you know the Michigan side, you have Donovan Edwards who ended up with 185 yards on 25 carries, JJ McCarthy 11 for 17, one interception, 161 yards, three touchdowns, and you know Ronnie Bell five receptions for 67 yards. So it's another game where the offense did enough scored you know a fair amount of points but really the defense got the job done and and came up big when it was important so um, again just a really interesting workmanlike game from Michigan Um, you know we've talked about this before you know been a lot around a lot of different teams and one of the interesting things about covering a game um, in the Big Ten Championship at Lucas Oil Field is that you have a lot more access to the sidelines prior to the game and then behind the scenes, like around the locker rooms before and after. And Purdue, I mean, again, they were definitely game on the field, but again, they, they kind of reminded me of a, of a team that was definitely overmatched and, you know, they got the heck out of Dodge when it was over. There wasn't a lot of frustration. I, I think that, you know, they, they knew they were overwhelmed. So, um, Another interesting thing that as I was running around um, right before the team took the field for the half, um, I was walking by the Michigan locker room and, you know, door opened and you heard a, you know, go blue beat Ohio, which really struck me at first. I was like, beat Ohio. And then, you know, it kind of got put in perspective after the game when, you know, J.J. McCarthy was asked, you know, how do you feel about possibly playing Ohio State again? Please, please, <laughs> bring it on. I mean, that, that would be truly a blessing if we get a shot to play those boys again. We talked a little bit about this when um, Jim Harbaugh faced Ryan Day, you know, for the, for the game, that I, I think this is a little bit of gamesmanship of we're not worried about Ohio, we want Ohio. And I, I, you know, I, I thought that was an interesting way to do it, that, you know, they're ready for any challenge, however it comes. So, again, I just thought that, you know, at that time, it, it really struck me. And I, I had to I had to catch myself that I hear what I thought I heard. And, and I did. So it's interesting the way they're gearing up. And, you know, every every game we've heard this this season that they're focused on the game at hand, but they have larger goals. Right. And how I took that beat Ohio cheer is, you know, their goal is to go all the way to the end of the college football playoffs. And if Ohio State is waiting for them, all the better. Yeah, I I think that it reiterates what we said after the game last week was um, this is an inflection point in the rivalry where the the pressure and the wonder and the doubt and the, the questioning of the program the questioning of the head coach has all shifted it you know to columbus you know they're they're in a very strange spot where they managed to get a a college football playoff berth is top four uh program in the country this year and it, it doesn't take much searching to find people who are still calling for ryan day to be on the hot seat or to be outright fired already because he's lost to michigan twice in a row and lost the first game in Columbus to Michigan in 22 years. So um, they, there are some people that have seen enough in terms of the, the direction of the program 
since Ryan Day took over for Urban Meyer. And, and they feel like the, the 2019 and 2020 seasons were kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the analogy is, is Wiley Coyote running off the cliff, right? And he kind of stays up suspended in the air for a few steps once he's off the cliff. And he realizes that there's uh, there's no ground beneath him and he falls. So um, that questioning and doubt is is really uh, it's familiar, right? It's what Michigan felt for you know at different points in the last 15, 20 years of, of the entire program, and every head coach um, back to Lloyd Carr at the end of his career. Certainly, Rich Rod and Brady Hoke felt it, and uh, and Jim Harbaugh felt it in the first five years of his uh, tenure. So uh, that pressure and those questions are, are significant. So first of all, there's no reason for the players on this year's Michigan team to to, to wonder or to have doubt about whether you know whether they want to play Ohio State again. I think that that makes perfect sense that they would be confident. But also, like you mentioned, the, the gamesmanship. Uh, aspect of it, I think, is also legitimate. You know, the pressure's all on them. You know, keep it on them. But yeah, make make it a, again where they've got to wonder whether they beat Michigan or are they going to be the first uh, Ohio State program to lose to Michigan three times inside of two years, right? Another historic, uh, problematic talking point for that program. Um, all, all of that ends up mounting on top of uh, their program and uh, the head coach, certainly, and eventually that trickles down to the players. And we've seen what happens when the players in your program are too nervous or are playing tight or too worried about what's going to happen as a result of the outcome as opposed to playing and, uh, you know, playing free and, and having fun and enjoying, you know, the enjoying the moment. You know, it's it's a very fine line between kind of embracing that moment and enjoying it as it's happening and being uh, tight and nervous about it. And we've seen that difference the last two years in the game against Ohio State. And, and not just Michigan versus Ohio State. We talked about this last season when we did our, our postseason wrap-up. It really seemed like there was not only an inflection versus Ohio State that was starting, but there was an inflection in the Michigan program where – they weren't satisfied with just making the college football playoffs. And it seemed, you know, the players were saying, listen, a culture has changed. There's a new vibe here. And, you know, that's one of the reasons we did the postseason wrap-up last year is we wanted to see if they could continue to build this season. And they have. They're continuing to ascend. So, you know, you talked about how tough it is for Ryan Day to lose two in a row to Michigan. What happens if you lose two times in the same season to Michigan? And especially if, you know, presumably the second one would be in the national championship game. So it's really has some interesting undertones and some interesting themes coming in. I mean, I think back, you know, you talked about Ryan Day being the wily coyote on the Ohio State side. You look back to the one year that Brady Hoke won. It was the Luke Fickle year, right? I call it the the Ohio state asterisk asterisk year, right? 40 to 34, but Hey, you had your, your pinch hitter coach, right? And you know, you didn't do enough to keep the job and he was gone. And you wonder if Ryan day is in a similar position now where 
you know, you've lost two in a row. And again, you know, from an Ohio State side, you wonder, would you rather lose the first game in the college football playoffs instead of eventually losing to Michigan? And again, it's just interesting. I really think that those are the kind of doubts and questions that's running through Ohio State's mind. And again, you made a great point, Clint. We've been on the other side of that. The end of Lloyd Carr, Rich Rodriguez, Brady Hoke era, even the beginning of Jim Harbaugh, you start wondering, gosh, are we ever going to win again, right? Has things shifted? And it is it is interesting to see the teams, you know, the demeanor on the Ohio State sideline when, when you know, I was down in Columbus, the attitude of the fans. Uh, again, it's really soured on... Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting was, you know, I think back to the 2006 season where both teams were 11 and 0 heading into the game, and Ohio State won 42 to 39. And prior to that game, there was some conjecture on, well, should they both, you know, continue on and meet again, right? And after the game, Ohio State fans were, oh no, Michigan had their chance. They had their chance, right? They didn't get it done. It was interesting to me to see Ohio State fans um, twisting themselves in a pretzel to explain how they should back in, you know, this season, especially when they lost so convincingly at home to Michigan, right? With Michigan down two of their best players, you know, and you know while we're while we're on the subject, right? So it was interesting to kind of see the Ohio State apologists um, making all the excuses on why they should be there, and well. You know, watch what you wish for. Um, you know, we're going to get to see it play out, especially since I know it's a different season, but, you know, Georgia's still Georgia. And, you know, I'm still smarting from what they did to Michigan last year in the college football playoffs. So Ohio State has a very tall order ahead of them. Yeah, absolutely. They've got plenty on their plate um, as the four seed taking on Georgia. Georgia is, is you know, maybe maybe one step one notch, you know, below where they were last year, uh, which was a, a really historically great uh, defense um, and uh, an explosive offense. And, and this year, the offense is is pretty similar to what they were last year, but they're not quite as um, as dominant uh, on both sides of the ball. So if, if they came back a step, um, and and this Ohio State team is is. I would say not quite as good as, as what they were last year, but um, I would say the Buckeyes have at least a puncher's chance because they, they are still very talented on the offensive side of the ball. We'll see how uh, we'll see how healthy they can get between now and then, especially in the in the running back room. And uh, you know, they if they can put up points. I mean, LSU was able to put thirty points up in that SEC title game uh, against against Georgia, so. There, there's a path there for Ohio State to kind of turn it into a little bit of a track meet at least early, and uh, and maybe hold on. So, I wouldn't I wouldn't be shocked uh, if it happened. But um, I, I agree with you that it's a tall order, and and we'll see, and we'll see how I think mentally they respond. Uh, you know, I, we hear from their fan base, and uh, in in the Ohio State media, certainly. Um, they feel as if they've been given second life, but we'll see how the program and the coaches and the players seem to respond um, to being given this, uh, this second life. Right. And uh, especially if, uh, if there's adversity early on, 
Um, I, I just, I still haven't seen these last couple of seasons. Uh, I haven't seen the Buckeyes really have to dig deep uh, mentally um, and, and, and really face adversity early in a game and, and kind of gut or, or grind out a, a win. I just, I haven't seen them able to do that. Usually it's, they jump on top by a big number early and they can hold on. Um, but when they're really up against it, I, it, they, they tend to play tight and, and um, they're not used to having to really fight their way out of a, of a tough situation. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Well, and, and again, it's just one game, but seeing the way the Ohio state team was just thumped down there and, and Clint, it's one thing to lose, okay? And I think back to the 2016 game, right? Both teams stood toe-to-toe. Ohio State came out on top with a little bit of help from the refs. But that was not a game that you would say Michigan was thumped and, and they left the field with their with their head hanging, right? It was, you know, again, one of those times, well, we, we, we ran out of time before we could win, right? It, you know, whatever mm. happened in overtime. And you get what I'm saying, you know, there are times where a team is definitely beat and Ohio State was beaten. Okay, they were they were down. And even, you know, if you listen to the post-game press conferences, CJ Stroud was apologetic. I mean, just just beaten, just, you know, the spirit thumped out of him. So, it, I wonder if Ohio State wants this matchup. Now, again, they're all competitors, they're all great athletes and and I'm sure that they will be pumped up and you know the competitors in them should want another opportunity but you know when you get beat like that at home you know on one of the largest TV audiences in in quite a long time you know it, I, they have a lot to come back from I think that you know you, you look at certain losses and you say that's going to leave a bruise and that one left a bruise so you know you wonder how quickly they can come back and you know, the, the same thing when you're talking about Georgia. They can't look past Georgia. They can't look past Georgia to hope to play Michigan again or they'll get embarrassed again, right? So it's interesting. You know, obviously, if Ohio State was to go on a run and win the national championship, I'm sure all would be forgiven with Ryan Day. But if, you know, they, they, they have this loss from Michigan in the game, and they go out and get thumped by Georgia, or if they somehow squeak by Georgia and get thumped by Michigan, you know, where does that leave the program, right? So whereas most programs would be very happy to make the college football playoffs, um, you know, this is a, a little different situation. Yeah, the, the, the best comparison, at least for how I felt and how I would imagine that it feels to be a Buckeye right now is really that 2018 season where Michigan – didn't play well in the first game of the season in South Bend, lost to Notre Dame, right? That's a team that, that in Notre Dame that ended up going to the, to the playoff. And then they win 10 games in a row, really dominating everybody on the schedule and riding high into Columbus. And then just got shellacked, right? Felt like a total sucker punch that, that I didn't see coming, certainly. Like, uh, it was, I expected a close game and, and everything, you know, sometimes strange things happen when you're in Columbus. So, so I didn't, I, you know, I was prepared to, to see a loss, but to get totally railroaded the way that they did in 2018 was, was a shock. And I remember 
in the days after that game, the questions were about the program. They weren't about the game. They weren't about X's and O's. They weren't about the players that were on the field, right? It was about Don Brown and his defense. It was about uh, Harbaugh and the program. It was about recruiting. It was a, you know, they was, they were existential questions, right? They, there, it was a paradigm shift in the program to where are, are we built the way that we need to be um, to, to win these games, you know, with, with it all? Can we, our offense wasn't prepared to, to win a shootout was, was the, the consensus, right? That if we fall down by a score or two uh, early on, this, this run heavy attack couldn't, couldn't get it done. And what the, the, the answer to that ended up being, you know, they didn't really transform on offense since 2018. There's still a run heavy, right. Uh, um, you know, uh, run the ball and and play action pass kind of centered on offense, but what they've done is shift on defense to contain and giving up yardage against Ohio State, but uh, tightening up and, and trying to hold them to field goals once the once the field shrinks in the red zone. So, um, and now now it's not it doesn't turn into a track meet and the ground and pound attack of the offense can can kind of take hold. So. Really, it, you can see this existential battle or the kind of the, the, the large-scale battle back and forth between Ohio State and, and Michigan where Ryan Day had Don Brown's number. Don Brown was a very, very successful defensive coordinator for Michigan for his entire tenure until he got buzzsawed by Ryan Day's passing attack. And now Ryan Day's passing attack is successful uh, in terms of yardage, but they can't beat Michigan over the top with what Mike McDonald and then Jesse Minter have been able to do by mixing more zone coverage and, and zone pressure schemes and keeping everybody in front of them, bracketing their number one uh, receiver and making the quarterback go through all of his progressions, um, knowing that C.J. Stroud doesn't want to take off and run, right, which is would be the most dangerous thing that Ryan Day could find would be a, a running quarterback now. So the fact that Stroud wants to sit in the pocket and either force the ball down the field or, um, you know, wait for something to come open underneath, um, it allows them to gain yards and move the sticks. But again, they've, they've failed to push the ball into the end zone for two straight years now. You know, I wonder, so after Michigan beat Ohio State in Ann Arbor last year, Ryan Day went big, totally rebuilt the defense, right? Brought in Jim Knowles. It struck me, listening to Jim Knowles' press conference this year after the game, if he is uh, Ryan Day's Don Brown, right? Like, brought in, well, you've already rebuilt the defense. Well, now what do you do? Do you rebuild again? This isn't mm -hmm. what you expected. If anything, it was far worse, and you didn't have the excuse of the weather. And again, it's, it is interesting and it's in front of your home crowd, right? Exactly. So that, that matters. That's, that's a big deal, especially down in Columbus. So lots to, uh, lots of off season drama ahead, I think. And, you know, while we will predominantly be watching Michigan, definitely a lots, a lot of subplots among our, among our major rival that we can watch over the next couple of weeks and, and in the offseason as things move forward. So, next question. 
Um, Heisman and Blake Corum didn't get invited to the ceremony. So my question for you, Clint, is when we look at the overall stats, right? Blake Corum ended up with 1,463 yards on the ground on 247 carries. Donovan Edwards ended up with 872 on 117 yards or 117 carries. Donovan Edwards averaged seven and a half yards per carry, and Blake Corum averaged 5.9 yards per carry. Uh, Blake Corum had 18 touchdowns. Donovan Edwards had seven. So here's my question. Do you think that Blake Corum's Heisman chances were hurt by how well Donovan Edwards ran this season? And my point being that when Blake Corum went out, you kind of just plugged Donovan Edwards in, and he had you know, a, a pretty huge game against Ohio State, and he ran for, um, you know, 185 yards in the Big Ten Championship. Do you think there was a perception that the uh, – that not that the running backs aren't super talented, but that the offensive line does a huge amount of the lifting and the, the offensive plays do a huge amount of the lifting? And do you think that hurt Blake Corb's chances of being a finalist for the Heisman at all? Well, there's, there's two pieces to the, to the answer. I do think, uh, I think Donovan Edwards stepping forward in the Ohio State game and then in the Big Ten championship game shows that the running attack, it, it starts up front. And Michigan's offensive line and scheme and uh, the, the, the diversity that they have with, uh, with what they're running, both with some inside zone or duo run concepts and some gap blocking power and counter concepts. Um, really that is the core of their run success. Now, Blake Corum is a difference maker, right? He, there's a reason that he was the number one back and that Donovan Edwards was the number two back, but Donovan's success in the last two games does show you that there's a, a certain amount of program success there. Um, above and beyond. Now, I don't think that particular realization hurt Blake Corum's Heisman campaign. I think just not playing in the second half against Illinois and not having the opportunity to play on the biggest stage in Columbus hurt Blake Corum's campaign, right? The, the was it, 17 million people watched that game against Ohio State in Columbus, the, the largest crowd to watch uh, uh, the large, largest TV audience to see a game in, in two decades. So, um, and certainly the largest by far of this season. So people were waiting to see what was going to happen in that game. I think a lot of the Heisman voters vote uh, early, right, after that week 13 rivalry week and before the, the conference championship games. Um, you know, I, I the, the eventual winner, Caleb Williams, the quarterback from USC, uh, was hurt in the in his conference title game, right? Had kind of a tweaked hamstring, still made a, a big play or two in the first half, but really his injury and his inability to, to move the way that he normally did is the reason that USC could not keep up with Utah in that championship game. But I think most of the votes for Caleb Williams were already cast. So um, I think that's what that's sunk uh, Blake Corum's Heisman campaign if he h had been healthy enough uh, to compete in the Ohio State game and put forward 
um, even half of what Donovan Edwards did in that game. Uh, you know, if one of those long runs was Blake Corum's uh, against Ohio State, then he's probably at least a finalist and, and stays in the picture. And I think he still ended up finishing seventh in the voting, you know, minus half of a game against Illinois and the full game against uh, Ohio State and, and obviously not playing against Purdue. So missing two and a half games, he still ended up seventh. So it's it's hard for me to believe that if he had put forward, you know, another touchdown and, and 125 yards in each of those games that he wouldn't have been sitting right there and had a great chance to win the trophy. The thought has crossed my mind, and not that Blake Corum isn't amazing, but I think back to last year when he got hurt and Hassan Haskins stepped in, right, ended up with, you know, 1,327 yards. So. Mm-hmm. So again, I think, I think my interpretation is Michigan is blessed with great running backs, great depth, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. I can understand, you know, if you're a, if you're a voter and you're thinking, hey, wait a minute, is it the system, or the back, or is it both? I think the question might be both, and I think Blake is great, but but again, I I it, the thought crosses my mind when I see mm-hmm. how Hassan just kind of plugged in last year and, and was just a workhorse. Okay. And I remember when Blake went down being super, super concerned because, you know, it was thunder and lightning and Hassan was definitely the supporting character for most of the year. And then he just turned it on against Ohio state. And that's exactly what I thought when I was watching Donovan Edwards, I was like, Oh, here is the um, supporting player grabbing the highlight or the spotlight at the most opportune time to, you know, kind of, um, cast a shadow over everything. And even though Blake had great stats, you know, I, again, it, it, it crossed my mind when I was watching it. So um, some other things, you know, that, that, you know, maybe I'm overthinking it cause I've, you know, watched the team so closely over two seasons. Yeah. Um, some other news that came out, um, Cade McNamara and Eric all have left the program. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Clint? I think, I think we knew or kind of had prepared ourselves back in the preseason or in the off season leading up to this season that uh, whichever quarterback did not win the quarterback battle, it was going to be tough to hold on to both of them. And really what we had hoped was that we would hold on to both of them through this season, thinking that we, you know, we would definitely need the backup quarterback to play a role in a pivotal moment. And Cade McNamara's injury in the in the third non-conference game, I think, against UConn, really changed that whole that whole paradigm. I think uh, number one, it uh, obviously the JJ McCarthy had taken control of the starting job through those first three non-conference games. Um, I think that was clear. You know, we talked about that a lot, uh, obviously in in those podcasts because that was the the main storyline early in the season. Uh, so JJ McCarthy won the game or won the the competition pretty clearly, and then when Cade was not allowed uh, the opportunity to continue playing because of that injury, then it made it clear that he was going to shut it down and start thinking about his future. Um, and, and I think that's perfectly reasonable. It also affected, I think, how the coaching staff utilized JJ McCarthy. I think we would have seen more. Uh, quarterback running attack this season, even than we did. Um, 
if Cade McNamara was still there and available to be uh, a second-string quarterback. Um, the drop-off from J.J. to Cade, I think, is still smaller than what it would be now uh, if there was a drop-off from J.J. to, to Davis Warren. So I think the safety net being removed uh, in terms of Cade McNamara not being available as a backup changed a little bit of the offensive game planning as well. So uh, I, Cade McNamara well, I think um, – what he accomplished on the field and as a leader in the 21 season and in the offseason leading up to 22 is uh, really remarkable. It's uh, something of uh, certainly of note in the, uh, in the history of the program. And, and I think I certainly will, will continue wishing him well and, uh, and I'll be rooting for, for Iowa in any game that, uh, that doesn't impact Michigan. I, I have no problem rooting for Iowa and, uh, Hopefully Brian Ferentz doesn't do the same damage to Cade McNamara that he has done on the rest of their offense uh, for the last five years. Well, hopefully Cade will have the gravitas to uh, control that offense rather than be controlled by a lackluster coach. So it's interesting when I think about Cade, I, I think back to in fall camp where, you know, he talked about that he really thought that he had done everything to capture the job. Absolutely. I think I'm by far playing my best football that I ever have in my life right now. Chris, what are you doing well? What am I doing well? Yeah. Um, I think I'm pushing the ball downfield. I'm throwing the ball with accuracy. My mechanics seem very clean right now. I'm not missing very often. Um, my recognition of the defense right now, it seems very clean. Um, and I think, you know, the more time we've spent with the receivers over camp, I've been able to gain even more chemistry with them and um, just finding zones, whether it's man coverage, zone coverage, and how we're dealing with those and our concepts and everything. I think, you know, this team is um, really ready. I think we've done a lot of situational preparation, a lot of um, work together, and not just myself, but I feel that this offense and this team is extremely prepared for this season. Then Harbaugh, you know, a couple games into the season said. He's really raised it the last, um, you know, really the last last week of training camp. I mean, uh, you know, really hit an inflection point. Um, last, those last, last scrimmage, you know, that we had as a, in the big house. And, um, and really from there, it's been, yeah, it's been just, yeah, really straight up for for him. So that's one, two, two and a half weeks. You know, really, um, you know, every single day has been has been about as good as it can be. It was really odd covering the team, Clint, because um, I really had no idea from talking to the coaches and the players who was who was the leader, right? Because we don't get to see the practices. And mm -hmm. I couldn't tell if they were trying to lead J.J. on so that he wouldn't leave or if they were trying to keep Cade so he wouldn't leave, right? Like, they were. some players would talk about how great Cade was. Some players would talk about how great J.J. was. And it it's really – it was an odd thing to witness. Like, you could see Cade realizing that the, the job was slipping away. And I think that there was some frustration there because, again, mm -hmm. Harbaugh talked about what a great spring he had. I know the competitor Kate is, and he'll, he'll, uh, he's got gravel in his gut, and he'll, he'll, uh, 
be ready for his next opportunity. That's, that's what I predict. And was saying all great things about Cade, and yet there was this shine on JJ, right? And um, you know, I, I guess the way I would describe it is that I think to a man, the players respected Cade and still do, okay? But I get the impression that they love JJ, right? And it's a different kind of a relationship. And, and it's a good relationship both ways, right? I mean, you want to be respected and you want to be loved. But just J.J. had that um, little brother enthusiasm that everybody seemed to just just light up to and, and really be attract, you know, attract people to. So, you know, I, I could I feel for Cade because, listen, he did everything we could ask of him last season. Right. He. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the prior season before, he was the spark where the program started to turn around. And yet, you know, here he, here he delivers a Big Ten championship in a college football playoff berth. And then you reset the next season and, he, and he's kind of, um, you know, back in a, in a dogfight. And then J.J. was out all spring, so it was all Cade, right? And, mm-hmm. and I, th- I really do think Cade believes he did everything in his heart and I think he just got eclipsed by more talent. And, and that's, you know, I think we've all been in that position as, you know, whatever level of an athlete we've been to be eclipsed by somebody better, you know, it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it's not fun. But, and, and I've said every day, now it seems like it's a weekly thing, right? That, but I still, I tend to believe what Jim Harbaugh says when he makes a clear public statement. So when he came out and said, listen, our starting quarterbacks are going to switch for the, the first game is going to go to Cade. He's going to be the starter. JJ will get snaps. And in the second game, JJ is going to be the starter and Cade will also get snaps. And we're going to evaluate from there and, and look at those games and look at the performance, look at not just uh, how it ended up statistically, but also, um, you know, some of the leadership traits that, that made Cade um, such a beloved figure. I think, and, and, and really endeared him to fans and to, to players in the locker room during that 2020 season where some of that, some of that toughness and, and willingness to grind through some of those tough times of the 2020 season, uh, he was faced with those challenges, right? So in that second game where he, when Cade wasn't the starter, he came in behind the, the second team offensive line and they had some, some protection issues. And he wasn't given the opportunity to execute at the same level. And I think he was pressing a little bit. I think he maybe felt as if uh, he had earned it in the off season, but in those moments that were very public facing, he, you know, JJ clearly performed better in those two games. And then in the third game, Kate ends up injured, right? Again, I believe he would have given, he would have had more opportunities to continue getting snaps and getting reps had he been able to, had he stayed healthy. But the, the beginning of the season for Cade McNamara could not have gone worse uh, in the games. And I, a lot of that was not of his doing in terms of protection and, and breakdowns and, and getting hit and getting injured. Um, but also starting in that first game, you know, he, he just didn't have his best day that day. And I think, I still believe that it was his performance that was driving him to the frustration that we saw in that, uh, in that post game news conference. Um, you know, I, I know what it looks like when a competitor is, is mad at himself, 
right? And, and that's that's what I picked up. That's what I felt um, from Cade McNamara in that first game is that he might have been disappointed that he was still in a quarterback battle, but he, he's not going to shy away from a competition. So here's the competition. Here's his shot, and he didn't play his best. And Jay did play well, and then JJ really played well in his starting opportunity. So all of that adds up to a lot of frustration. It certainly uh, is not a surprise how it ended up. And, and I'm again, I, I really hope that he is able to put together a great season at Iowa. I hope that it uh, kind of catapults him into uh, a career at the next level. Um, I, I certainly think that he is capable of doing what's necessary to uh, you know to make a 53-man roster in the NFL and and, and serve a functional role in the NFL as a quarterback. The other thing that I think we need to point out is that J.J. started that game under the weather adversity, right? You know, here you are preparing for your game, and the game had that delay because of the, the epic rainstorm, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the whole your whole pregame ritual got disrupted. And, you know, here he is warming up in the tunnel instead of on the field. And, and again, you got to give it, you got to give credit to him. And, you know, I do look back on those breakdowns that, you know, didn't help Cade, right? Mm-hmm. And I could just see, you know, yes, he was pressing, but you also had some bad luck there, right? Mm-hmm. Really bad, yeah. And, and you just look and go, wow, the offensive line is lights out all year, and they did have some failures at some inopportune time. So, uh, so again, wish Cade the best. Um, again, you know, I hope if, uh, if he somehow ends up facing Michigan in the Big Ten championship game next year. And, uh, you know, one thing we, you know, one thing I didn't mention is it was a predominant Michigan crowd in Indianapolis. And I would mm-hmm. expect it to be again. I would expect the Michigan faithful to, to give him quite a cheer, uh, you know, uh, of, as a sign of respect um, mm-hmm. if we ever face him on the field again um quality guy you know michigan man all that good stuff and wish him the best like you said um another player who uh oh and um the one thing i'll say about about the last thing on the Cade thing is so the other thing that i thought was really weird is that all during harbaugh's tenure he was really reluctant to talk about injuries except when Cade got hurt yeah Cade. Cade. uh unfortunately Yes, yeah, his, his, uh, I think his foot was caught in the ground and got hit by, hit from the side of the uh, leg and probably going to be out for a few weeks. Not going to be a season-ending thing, I don't, I don't think. But uh, he'll he'll miss he'll miss some time. Maybe that was just a sign of how bad the injury was. But I, I just that was another weird note that I that I thought was odd. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, another player who's decided to leave the program and you know had. A huge moment last season versus Penn State, probably you know the moment that helped pivot that season toward the success that Michigan ultimately had. Uh, Eric All has decided to leave the program, and you know another point. Cade was a captain and left, and Eric All was also a captain. So, what are your thoughts on the news that Eric All has decided to leave? Well, first of all, from a from an emotional fan standpoint, it's just as disappointing and 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 sad to see a really great player and great leader go. Um, I, I don't know that he's committed to another program yet. I know he showed up at Iowa's basketball game with Cade, um, so it would make sense if he ends up over there. 
uh, Iowa certainly had success turning uh, you know tight ends into NFL players, but uh, uh, it's just frustrating to lose a really great player like that. And this particular case uh, being tied to Eric All's uh, health status, right? There's there's um, a lot of whispering and pointing and some innuendo, especially on social media coming from you know direct sources, indirect sources. Uh, from from the best that I can tell, um, this is all tied to uh, Eric All's back injury and his decision to have surgery and where he had surgery and, and how uh, all of that was supported or not supported by the U of M medical staff. And it's it's a reminder uh, again in a conversation that you and I have semi regularly that. The, the kids that are really putting their, their health and bodies and their, their future earning potential on the line uh, for the university, um, it, it's sometimes you get these stark reminders at who is really sacrificing and who's really taking and bearing the brunt of the risk uh, for, you know, for the program, for the football program to remain successful. And then when there are tough decisions to be made, um, the, 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 the person who ends up on the short end is almost always the player who has been out there uh, risking their, their, their body uh, for, for our entertainment. So, uh, again, it, it circles back for me to a lot of those conversations about player compensation and thinking first from the player's perspective. I think Jim Harbaugh has a long history of being an advocate for the, the players uh, in every facet. And this seems to be a, a certainly an unfortunate scenario that has unfolded where um, there's, there's Eric Hall is not going to be on the roster next season. And I'm sure that uh, that, that was a very difficult decision, uh, especially all tied to this, this medical status. Really disappointing. I really liked him. Again, he delivered that key play versus Penn State last season. And we have, you know, if you go back and listen to the podcast um, of that game, we have those great quotes. He was really excited. And it's one of the reasons I really like to cover the team is you see players when they're successful, right? Mm -hmm. And heading into this season, Harbaugh was touting him as an NFL talent. You know, there was a story about how, um, you know, he, he had a new son and that – you, you got the impression, listen, he wanted to have a great year, put some great performances on tape, and go pro, right? That was the plan. And he was hampered by injury right out of the gate. And, um, you know, you just, well, we don't know what's going to happen. And the rumors swirled and the rumors swirled. And then the pictures on Twitter of he's having surgery and, hey, guys, thumbs up, right? So the other thing that struck me is down in Columbus – uh, you're watching the team come up the tunnel, and again, we have access to a, a area off the field. Took a lot of photos, and if you go to the website, you can see a lot of those post-game celebration pictures. And Eric all was so happy, Clint. Huge smile there with his teammates. And I remember thinking, you know, good, he's going to be back right here. He's how could you be a part of this and not want to come back, right? And in that subsequent week, when you you know mentioning nil. I went to Ann Arbor Hopcat, and they're advertising the Eric Allburger, 
right? Which I'm sure he got, you know, some sponsorship money, you know, related to NIL. I ordered it and I felt great ordering it, right? I'm like, great, good for Eric All, glad to, you know, help support him. And then just a few days later, the news broke that he was leaving the program. And again, just a disappointment because he seemed like a really quality guy and and you just you want the best for the players. And like you said, they're the ones paying the price. So mm-hmm. not only is he not going pro, but he's transferring to another school and, you know, lots of changes with that. And you wonder, OK, so how is that going to affect him seeing his kid? I mean, really, you start all these other thoughts kind of f- come flooding in and you just you just feel bad. Right. So, you know, if if he ends up at Iowa and we don't know that for sure yet, but if he ends up at Iowa with Cade, you know, I hope he does great. I hope he plays well every game except, you know, when when he faces Michigan. And I will still cheer him, you know, when he takes the field. If he ends up taking the field against Michigan, I'll, I'll still cheer him and wish him the best. Yeah, I think a great kid, great uh, young man, great attitude, great work ethic, did everything uh, in terms of practice and, and, and performance that we could have we could have asked for as fans. I think without Eric Hall, we really don't have a Luke Schoonmacher. You know, I think uh, he kind of set the standard for um, being a, a really dangerous pass threat combination with a really good run blocker. And I think without Luke Schoonmacher, I don't think that you end up um, with Colston Loveland developing the way that he did this year. So Eric all really kind of set the standard in that tight end room over the last, uh, you know, three or four seasons and, and certainly the 21 and 22 seasons and, and that success and the role that he played. So, um, you know, he leaves, he leaves quite a legacy in Ann Arbor, even, uh, even as he transfers. So, uh, again, from, from me as a fan, uh, disappointing to see him go. Uh, I will certainly, like you said, be cheering for him personally to, to have great success and, and make it to the next level. Uh, and whatever team he ends up with, as long as it doesn't impact Michigan, I'll be rooting for his team as well. And, uh, Again, keep this in mind when when we're talking about who's really uh, you know who's really risking it and putting it on the line for uh, a multi-billion-dollar entertainment industry. All right, well that's going to do it for this edition of the UMGlobal.com podcast. This is Phil Callahan along with Clint Derringer. Go Blue. Thank you for listening to the UMGlobal.com podcast. All rights reserved. Search for umgoblue.com on iTunes. Go Blue.